The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in our study of Romans. We are taking a look at the latter part of Romans chapter 1. We started this discussion last week, and I said we would come back and finish the discussion today. Paul, of course, deals with some very difficult subjects here, and we said that Paul is almost shocking in his candor. And so I said last week as we waded into this section of the epistle that I wanted to do so with a high degree of humility, and I want to do that again today, because I know that some of what we're going to talk about, particularly the pastoral application of these texts to our lives, uh, can be uncomfortable. I'm well aware of that. So before we actually go to Romans, I, I would prefer if you'd keep your finger there and just skip, if you will, for a moment to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want you to understand why we're doing what we're doing, aside from the fact that we're just simply working our way through Romans. I want to point out to you, again, sometimes people say, well, that's all that the church wants to talk about is human sexuality and all of these issues and so forth. I want you to know that I've been the rector here for six years now, and I have never once addressed this topic. It has certainly never been preached from the pulpit uh, during my tenure, um, not by me, not by any of the other members of the clergy. But we are dealing with it because Paul deals with it in Romans chapter 1. You, you cannot study this great epistle to the Romans and avoid this subject. So as we wade into this, I just want to turn your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3 for just a moment. And I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul is saying to his young protege, Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse, I was going to say 16, but let's, let's back up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. And remember, Paul is writing to Timothy. Paul, when he wrote this letter, was imprisoned in Rome, so he eventually did get there uh, in chains, as it turns out. Uh, he ended up in Rome. This was his final imprisonment there. He was in a place called the Mamertine Jail, and he was under guard. He was guarded by the Praetorian Guard, which were the troops that were actually responsible for guarding the emperor. So Paul was under lock and key. He also knew, as he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that his time on this earth was coming to an end. He could sense that. Uh, there was a rising persecution within the Roman Empire during this period in history. And so uh, Paul knew that he was in trouble. Um, the city of Rome had endured an enormous fire that had burned large portions of it. Uh, many people were blaming the emperor, Nero, for the destruction. Nero, like all good politicians, looked for a scapegoat, and he blamed the Christians. There was only one small section, a ghetto of the city of Rome that was untouched by the flames, and it so happened that it was occupied by Christians, and so he blamed Christians for this. And so there was this great persecution that erupted uh, in the Roman Empire against Christians. And Paul was rounded up as one of the ringleaders of the Christian movement, brought back to Rome, and he was awaiting execution. And shortly after he wrote this letter, 
um, he would indeed be executed on the main thoroughfare going out of the imperial city. Paul would be beheaded. Now, unlike Peter, he would not be crucified. He would not be crucified because Paul was a Roman citizen and crucifixion was considered to be beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen, but he would be beheaded. So Paul knew that his life is coming to an end. Second Timothy is the last letter that we have from the hand of the Apostle Paul. So some have described that as Paul's last will and testament, he's giving his final instructions to a young man who is going to assume the mantle of leadership in the church in those days. So these are Paul's final instructions to a young man who's going to have to step quite literally into his sandals and lead the church. And this is what he says. Let's just take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. I think these are words that will resonate with us. Sometimes we think, well, Paul lived a long time ago. But what we will discover is that there's hardly anything new under the sun. He writes, but understand this, that in the last days. Now, when Paul talks about the last days, what Paul is really talking about is that whole period of time between the Lord's ascension and his returning glory. So he's saying in that whole time period, this is what's going to happen. Are we living in the last days? Yes. Are we living in the last of the last days? Nobody knows. But one thing is for certain, we're much closer to the Lord's return than Paul was in the first century. And this is his advice to us. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. They'll be brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will have the appearance of godliness, but they will deny its power. Now skip on down to verse 10 for just a moment, because what's follows there is something that applies to a first century context, and we're not going to get into it. But just take a look at verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's something to keep in mind. We think we can avoid it. You can't avoid it if you are faithful. That's what Paul is saying. He said, you will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Well, what are we to do in a situation like that? And if you think about it, that's a pretty apt description of 21st century America, isn't it? Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of God, but denying its power. Tell me that's not a description of 21st century America. That's a picture of 21st century America, not just 1st century Rome. And so the question becomes, what are we to do in those kinds of circumstances if we are called to live as Christians? Aside from the fact that we are going to endure persecution, what else should we do? Well, Paul goes on to tell us, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That's why we're studying the Epistle to the Romans. It's because it is God's Word. It's been breathed out by Him, and even though it has some difficult parts in it, particularly here at the beginning, but elsewhere, I think, too, it is nevertheless God's Word, and it is intended for our benefit. It's intended to build us up. So let's try to approach it with that level of humility as Christians trying to live under the authority of Scripture, asking ourselves, all right, if this is what the Bible teaches, then how do we apply this to our lives and to the lives of others in a way that is faithful to the Word, but also pastorally sensitive to the challenges that we face in this postmodern world? That's what we want to do today. And I know that this is a topic that can make some people feel somewhat uncomfortable, particularly if you're of a certain generation. I had somebody come up to me this week and said, my wife made me listen to your lecture on sex. And I said, oh, and he said, so I did. But we had to sit on opposite ends of the room. Just the idea of it's, it's an uncomfortable topic. And I didn't want to look at her and she didn't want to look at me, but we needed to listen to the lecture. So I recognize that this is a somewhat uncomfortable topic. But you need to understand, first of all, not only does Paul address it, but it is a subject that is everywhere in our culture. So if you're going to be effective in terms of being a Christian and witnessing to the truth of the gospel, this is unavoidable. It's simply unavoidable. So Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Let's go ahead and read them again. And I want to take a look at the pastoral response. How should we as Christians respond to what Paul is saying here. He said, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, just a quick review, very quick review of what Paul has been saying thus far in this epistle to the Romans. He's saying that the gospel, and that's what this epistle is all about, he is an apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the good news of Jesus Christ. He said the good news of Jesus Christ is desperately needed in the world today because the wrath of God, the judgment of God, is being poured out upon humanity. Why is the wrath of God, the judgment of God, being poured out on humanity? Because, Paul says, God has made himself known in the created order. But mankind, rather than accepting the truth about God, has suppressed that truth. It's not a case where men and women are ignorant of the truth. They have suppressed the truth about God. Now, we said that this notion of general revelation is not enough to save anybody. God's revelation in nature tells us that there is a deity. It doesn't tell us what he's like. You can get a mixed message in creation. But Paul's point there is that God has left us enough of a witness even in the created order. Now, he gives us a special revelation in Jesus Christ, 
But even apart from Jesus Christ, there is enough of a revelation in nature that if human beings recognize there is a God and they earnestly seek after him, they will find him. That's what Jesus meant when he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. He said, but even though God has made himself known in creation, men and women, because they want to be in charge of their own lives, they want to be in control of what their own lives are all about, they suppress the truth about God. And they serve the creation rather than the creator. And so what eventually happens? What eventually happens, Paul says, is that God gives them up. God is basically saying, this is how you are to do it. I am the creator. This is the way I want you to do it. But if you insist upon doing it your own way, I'll give you up and let you do it your own way. And you can deal with the consequences of that action. And that's exactly what Paul says God has done. Because men and women insisted upon doing things their own way, suppressing the truth about God, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. And therefore it is, verse 24, God gave them up. And they started on what we described last week as a downward spiral. What happens when God gives us up to do what we want to do? Well, the first thing that happens, he says is that we begin to see this corrupting influence of sin in our lives, and it is manifest first and foremost in the things that we do with our bodies. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And we said this means that um, sexual relations begin to take place outside the context of holy matrimony. But it doesn't stop there. It then goes from things that are natural but not according to God's will, to those things that are not only not according to God's will, but unnatural. Now, we asked the question last week, well, why does Paul start with sexual sins? Are, are sexual sins the worst sins? Not necessarily. Actually, spiritual sins are more serious than bodily sins. Because there are some spiritual sins that actually corrupt the spirit worse than our bodily sins. Pride, for example, is considered to be the greatest of the deadly sins. Pride leads to all kinds of problems. Envy leads to all kinds of problems. Envy inevitably leads to murder. You envy somebody enough, you, you can, it leads to murder. Now, you might say, well, it doesn't always lead there, and that's true. But envy, if you water it like a plant, if you care for it long enough, if you carry it in your bosom long enough, it will make you hate your neighbor. It will bring you to the point where you wish your neighbor was dead, which Jesus says is the same thing as murdering in your heart. Oh, I wish I had what he has. I can't stand him. Oh, I just wish he were dead. I'm not going to kill him, but I wish. And see, the problem is man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, doesn't he? We say it every Sunday in that call it for purity. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. So it's true, there are spiritual sins that are far more grievous in terms of their destructive influence than sexual sins. But why does Paul deal with sexual sins first? Because it's the most obvious example. Let's be honest, pride 
and envy are not always apparent, are they? You can be a proud person, but you can always put up a false humility. And you can be envious without actually showing it to a person. You may envy somebody, envy them to the point that you hate them, but you are polite to their face. Shakespeare has a wonderful line, I smile whilst I kill. But sexual sins, we see those, don't we? They were evident in Paul's society. And let me tell you something, they are the most obvious in our society. There is no subject that we are more obsessed with in Western culture than sex. It sells everything from bicycles to Uncle Ben's rice. I guess you can't call it Uncle Ben's rice anymore, but whatever it is, that's the way it is. It sells everything. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful quote that I think gets it right. It describes where our culture is. Lewis said, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? Well, is that not an apt description of where we are? Of course, it's an apt description of where we are. And that's why Paul deals with this issue. Now, last week, we took a look at the various biblical citations that deal with this whole subject. And we pointed out that it's not just Paul here in Romans that deals with this. Paul deals with it in other places as well. He deals with it in a more, even more in-depth way, actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He also references it in his other letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. There are references to sexual behavior outside the context of marriage, even in Acts chapter 15. So it is elsewhere. It's also in the Old Testament, we know, in the Levitical law. As a matter of fact, same-sex relationships or activities were condemned by the Levitical law and punishable in those days by stoning. So we understand that it's there in the Old Testament. It's there in the New Testament. The question often arises, well, we know what Paul felt, but perhaps Paul was just, you know, struggling with something personally or whatever it may be. What did Jesus have to say about it? And we looked at Jesus in the Jewish context. We said that this was not a subject of conversation in the Gospels because Jesus was operating in a Jewish context and the Jewish law forbade it. But when Jesus was asked about the law on these kind of moral ethical matters, Far from undermining the law, Jesus actually took a much harder stance. He upheld the law. In fact, he intensified the law. And the law would have included these types of behavior. So the first thing I want you to understand is the unanimous witness of Scripture is what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 1. 
that sex is a gift, that it is a gift that is meant to be enjoyed within the context of holy matrimony, pure and simple. And any kind of sexual act outside the context of holy matrimony is not in accordance with God's will, whether that's homosexual, heterosexual, whatever. That it's within that context that it's supposed to take place. Anything beyond that is contrary to God's will and his sin. So I want you to understand that that is the unanimous witness of Scripture. Now, once we come to the realization that that's what the Bible is saying, and even the most liberal scholars these days will not deny the fact that that is what the Bible is teaching, then the question becomes, what do we do with that? And I think we've got one of two responses, folks, when it comes to this. We can either say, well, the Bible was written a very long time ago. Paul was a first century man. He was a product of his environment and so forth. But we live in the 21st century, and we know a lot more as a consequence of science and so forth than they did in the first century. So what Paul says here does not apply. Now, you can take that tact, and many people do. But what I want you to understand is that that is a very slippery slope. Because if you say that Paul is not authoritative on these matters, then what else is Paul not authoritative on? You see why it's a slippery slope? You could say, well, Paul was wrong on that. Maybe he was wrong on something else. And the whole notion of biblical authority goes right out the window. So you can adopt that stance if you want, but I want to tell you, as a Christian, that is very problematic, and it's one of the reasons why the mainline Protestant denominations are in such disarray today, because they don't have any more locus of authority. If the Bible is no longer authoritative in all matters of faith and practice, then something else has to fill that vacuum. And normally what it is, is that church's governing body. Whether it's the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church or the General Convention of the Episcopal Church, what happens is that a bunch of people get together and they vote on things, and whoever gets the most votes, that's what becomes authoritative. So if we don't want to go that route, if we do want to say, okay, the Word of God, as Paul has said to Timothy, is in fact just that, God's authoritative word to us, and we are called to live under it, even in difficult times, how do we respond in a pastoral way to those who are struggling with this? Because clearly they are. And I think for us, that's the real question. I, I believe that the Bible is the word of God. I believe that it contains all things necessary to salvation. Now the question is, how do we respond in a compassionate way? That's what I want to deal with today. Before we get there, though, I want to just touch briefly on the subject of the causes of homosexuality. Because one of the other complaints that you'll hear, or one of the other arguments you'll hear on the other side is, well, if a person is born that way, how in the world can you find fault? How in the world can you hold them accountable for something that they are born with? When I was in seminary back in the 80s and 90s, this was a huge huge discussion. And there was a lot of research being done on the whole issue of genetic dispositions toward homosexual behavior. There was this search for what they called the gay gene. There was a belief that there was perhaps a defective X chromosome that was passed on from the mother 
to sons. Interestingly enough, the studies were primarily focused on male homosexuality, not female homosexuality. But there was a study that came out in the 1990s that indicated that there was some genetic material on an X chromosome passed on from the mother to sons that might have triggered homosexual tendencies. And so many people began to argue, well, if they're, if they're born that way, how can you find fault? I mean, it's, it's like somebody being born left-handed. You know, when my father went to school, he was born left-handed. They broke him of that habit. You know that? And he did not go to parochial school. But they were not permitted to write left-handed. Any of you remember those days? So if you were born with a left hand, you had to learn how to write right-handed. Now, he couldn't help the fact that he was born left-handed. And many people would argue, well, if somebody is born with these tendencies, how in the world can you find fault? It's the way they were born. And so a lot of studies went into this back in the 80s and 90s. Most of those studies were inconclusive. The vast majority of them were inconclusive. In 2019, so that's just about a little over two years ago, in 2019, a massive study came out out of the UK. It involved a number of British scientists and researchers, as well as American scientists and researchers. You may have seen it. It appeared on the front cover of all the major news um, magazines and all the major news outlets. And what it declared, this is from the Independent, there is no such thing as a gay gene, says major study. Harvard Magazine, this was their lead story. There's still no gay gene. What that study, which was the largest study of its time ever engaged in, what that study concluded was that there is no conclusive evidence that there is anything genetic that causes homosexual attraction, either in men or in women. In fact, the study said, it is probably a combination of a number of factors. There may be some genetic elements in there, but there's certainly nothing that automatically triggers this one way or the other. Instead, the study said, this came out in the, Guard, or the Daily Mail in the UK, homosexuality is caused by both genetic and environmental factors. So, is it nature or is it nurture? And what some of the most recent studies seem to indicate is that it may be a combination of both. Translate, we don't know. We don't know what causes this. But one thing is very clear, you simply cannot say anymore, well, I was born this way, it was hardwired into me. The most recent science says that that is no longer the case. And I can make all of these articles available on the website, so you can go ahead and read them for yourself. But let's just say that at some point in the future, science is always a changing thing. You know, it's a moving target. What if we discover at some later point that homosexual, homosexual behavior does occur naturally? Does that mean that the church has to change its stance? Does that mean that we have to rewrite the New Testament and what the Apostle Paul and others say about this? 
Well, I want you to understand the Bible is very clear. We are all born with certain tendencies. Every single one of us. And some of those tendencies are destructive. Psalm 51, that's David's great psalm of confession. He says, in my mother's womb, as I was conceived, I was a sinner. We call that being OS positive, original sin positive. We all have a tendency toward destructive, sinful behavior, don't we? So that's the first thing you need to understand as we weigh into this next section of our study of this topic here in Romans chapter 1, that what Paul is talking about here is not temptation or even tendency or even proclivity. What Paul is talking about is activity. We're all tempted. There's not, probably not a man in the room at one point or another that has not been tempted in an adulterous way. But as Billy Graham once said, and I love this, the way he put it, he said, you cannot stop birds from flying into your hair. I think he said that back in the 60s when ladies had those big bouffant hairdos. He said, you cannot stop birds from flying into your hair, but you can stop them from nesting there. <laughs> and there's truth in that, isn't it? We're all going to be tempted. My goodness, even Jesus was tempted. That's why the, apostle, the epistle to the Hebrews says, that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet what? Did not sin. So the problem is not in the temptation. The problem is giving into it. So if somebody is born with a proclivity toward this type of activity, that in and of itself is not wrong. Furthermore, Romans chapter 3 if you will, turn to Romans chapter 3 for just a second and listen to what Paul says here. He says, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. So this tendency toward destructive Selfish behavior exists in all of us. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. We all have natural tendencies toward sinful behavior, toward those things that are outside the context of God. And furthermore, there are many things that we know people have a genetic predisposition toward that are destructive, and even though they may be born with these tendencies, we don't necessarily say that it's okay. For example, we know now that certain people have a tendency toward alcoholism. It runs in families. All right? We describe alcoholism as a disease. We are more enlightened in our understanding of what causes alcoholism than people in a former day who just felt that you were weak in terms of your character. We understand that there are certain dispositions, that if your father was an alcoholic, that may be a problem for you. But how many of us would say, well, simply because you're born that way, you ought to go ahead and indulge? Because we recognize that born that way or not, Alcoholism is destructive to the individual, physically and otherwise, and it destroys families. Isn't that true? Same is true of kleptomania. 
You know what kleptomania is? It's Yes, it's stealing things. This is an interesting thing. If this is, I picked this up this morning off the Mayo Clinic website. Kleptomania. Kleptomania is the recurrent inability to resist urges to steal items that you generally don't really need and that you usually have little value. Kleptomania is a rare but serious mental health disorder that can cause much emotional pain to you and your loved ones if not treated. Kleptomania is a type of impulse control disorder, a disorder that's characterized by problems with emotional or behavioral self-control. If you have an impulse control disorder, you have difficulty resisting the temptation or drive to perform an act that's excessive or harmful to you or someone else. Many people with kleptomania live lives of secret shame because they're afraid to seek mental health treatment. Although there's no cure for kleptomania, treatment with medication or talk therapy, psychotherapy, may help to end the cycle of compulsive stealing. And there's the website, so you can read the article for yourself. Now, what that's telling us is that some people have a disposition, for whatever reason, toward kleptomania. But how many of us are going to say, if you own a shop, the kleptomaniac comes in here and he starts stealing things out of your shop, you're going to say, well, he can't help it. He's born that way. Every single one of us is going to say, well, he may be born with that way, but he still can't do it. Isn't that right? How about pedophilia? Now, this one gets really tricky. But this was a New York Times op-ed piece, October 5th, 2014, written by Margot Kaplan, who is an assistant professor at Rutgers School of Law. And this is the final paragraph. I couldn't put the whole article up there, but there's the reference. You can go back and read it for yourself. But I think this is very telling. What she says is this, a pedophile should be held responsible for his conduct. How many of you would agree with that? Okay, but not for the underlying attraction. Arguing for the rights of scorned and misunderstood groups is never popular, particularly when they are associated with real harm. But the fact that pedophilia is so despised is precisely why our responses to it in criminal justice and mental health have been so inconsistent and counterproductive. Acknowledging that pedophiles have a mental disorder and removing the obstacles to their coming forward and seeking help is not only the right thing to do, but it would also advance efforts to protect children from harm. Now, what is she saying there? Pedophilia is a mental health issue. So all I want you to understand is that, yes, we all have a tendency towards certain things, and there are many things out there in society that we acknowledge may be the result of a genetic disposition or maybe the result of your environment or whatever it is, and that helps us to have compassion for the individual, but nevertheless, we're not saying they can necessarily indulge in it because it is destructive to what? The individual and to society as a whole. Now, of course, we never want to apply that to sex because we think sex is a private matter. But it's not necessarily a private matter. It does have ramifications for all of society. So if that is the case, if we don't know what causes this, even if there is some sort of natural disposition toward it, we recognize that it can be destructive to society. How are we as Christians to respond? 
Because these people, gays, lesbians, transsexuals, whatever it may be, those people are people for whom Christ died. And he loves them every bit as much as he loves us. So how do we respond in that kind of a situation? What should be the church's response? Well, you may want to write some of these citations down. We're going to walk through them here. I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as possible because some of you may have some specific questions, and I want to try to answer those. And then I'm going to share a little bit out of my own personal life that may help you to gain some perspective. So turn back, we looked at this last week, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Paul writes, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. When he says sexually immoral here, because he goes on to differentiate with homosexual behavior, sexually immoral means those who are engaged in sexual activity outside the context of marriage. So he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What I want you to understand about this is that Paul lumps all of these things together. And he doesn't say that one is worse than the other. So that's the first thing we need to understand. While homosexual behavior may not be acceptable to God, It's no worse than any other sin. Now, the culture may say certain sins are worse than others, but that is not the teaching of the scripture necessarily. So a person who's engaged in adulterous relationship, that's just as bad in God's eye as somebody who's engaged in homosexual behavior. If you're a gossip, that's just as bad in God's eyes as somebody who's committing adultery. Now, it may be more destructive for society in terms of adultery, but in God's eyes, it's the same. Some years ago, it was discovered that there was some botulism in a batch of vichyssoise soup that was being sold at the supermarket. Now, if you know anything about botulism, you know that it is a very deadly thing. Here's the question. How much botulism would have to be in your can of soup before you would say, I'm not going to eat that? See, the issue is this. The smallest amount, the tiniest amount of botulism is deadly. So the tiniest amount of sin is deadly. That's like saying it's only a little bit of cancer. So we need to understand, first of all, in terms of our response, that those who are engaged in homosexual behavior are not worse sinners than anybody else. There may be in society respectable sins, the ones that we overlook, but God doesn't overlook any of them. So that's the first thing. As we think about our pastoral response, we need to understand these people are no worse than we are. Take a look in the mirror. Here's the second principle I want to suggest to you. And and by the way, and I'm going to come back to this, this is how the Bible teaches. It teaches us with principles. 
If you are looking for answers to very specific issues and you think it's like the teacher's edition, you simply go to the index and there's the answer. That's not the way it is. The Bible's written for adults. It gives us principles that we can apply to our lives in varying situations. So let me take you to an example of how I think we are to respond to this kind of a situation, given the fact that we have to say that it's a sin, but we can't say that it's worse than any other sin. How do we respond to it? Well, turn to John chapter 8 for just a moment, and we're going to share with you a familiar story. Some of you will notice in your Bibles a little note at the beginning that says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811, and that is true. That is the earliest manuscripts of John. What we do know is that the story that I'm about to share with you, a very familiar story, is found in other versions of the Gospels. Um, it doesn't, the earliest manuscripts don't have it right here at this point in John. Sometimes it appears somewhere else in John and other manuscripts. All scholars at this point, including even the most radical questioning scholars, agree that this story is part of the Jesus tradition. So we don't know exactly where it fits in but nobody denies the fact that it is part of the tradition. So let's take a look at it. John chapter 8, they each went to their own house, but Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And that's where many people stop. Well, there it is. That's, that should be our response. Jesus says, you who have no sin, cast the first stone. But that's not actually where the story ends. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. But then he goes on to add this. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What Jesus does is two things. First of all, he does not condemn the woman. But the second thing he does is he tells her to go and leave her life of sin. In other words, he acknowledges that what she was doing was a sin. As Christians who want to be faithful to the scriptures, but pastoral in our application, this is something we need to understand, that whoever we're dealing with is a sinner, but so are we, and their sin is no worse than ours. We are not in a position to condemn them without condemning ourselves, but we cannot condone the behavior in ourselves or in them. Who condemns you? Neither do I condemn you, but... Go and leave your life of sin. It's interesting in that passage from 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about being a new creation 
a new creation. He said, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are made new, which means that anybody can be transformed. I'm not talking about those movements that take somebody out of homosexual behavior and makes them a heterosexual. I don't know about that. What I do know, however, is that somebody, no matter what their proclivities and no matter what their former life is, if they are willing to abandon that former life, they can become a new creation in Christ. And their sins are washed away as though they had never occurred in the first place. And what's true for us is true for anybody else. So for those who are struggling with this, I think what the church ought to do, and we're reticent to do this, but I think what we ought to do is the same thing we do with people who struggle with other things that are destructive, even if they have a disposition for them. Isn't it interesting that somebody that suffers with alcoholism, they used to just be ignored. They used to be shamed. Now we have organizations to support them and to help them and to help their family members. But with the church in the, in the recent history, we've done one of two things. We've either kicked them to the curb and said, turn or burn, or we've condoned their behavior. Both of which, it seems to me, by Jesus' example in John chapter 8, are unacceptable. I had a friend when I was in seminary, and um, he was studying to be an Episcopal priest, and he left the seminary, and he went off to become a Roman Catholic. And he was gay. And I said to him on one occasion, I said, Rome? I mean, I think the Roman Catholic Church does some wonderful things, but for me, Rome is something I struggle with in terms of differences in doctrine. And that was particularly true in those days. And so I said to him, you're, you're going to leave us and go to Rome? Why would you do that? And he said, you know, I have suffered, struggled for years with same-sex attraction. And he said, and I went and I, I spoke to an Episcopal priest about this. He said, I felt guilty. I read the scriptures. I felt guilty about what I was doing. And so I went for counsel and for advice. And the Episcopal priest said, oh, you're fine just the way you are. This is the way God made you. You ought to get over this guilt and begin to engage in this lifestyle and be happy. And he said, I tried it. And he said, all I found was more guilt and misery. He said, I was at the point of suicide. He said, in desperation, one night I went to a Catholic church and I saw a Catholic priest and he told me, this is what he told me. He said, what you're doing is not right, but the church is here to help you, to support you and to love you and to keep you on the straight and narrow. He said, the Episcopal priest, this is, these were his words, patted me on the head and sent me to play in traffic. The Episcopal priest patted me on the head and sent me to play in the traffic. And the Roman Catholic priest spoke truth in love. I think that's what we're called to do. And it's a difficult thing. So why don't we have organizations? We have organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous. There's no shame in that. Oftentimes, they meet at churches. But for homosexuals, there are some, but my point is they're not as widespread as what you see when it comes to AA or Al-Anon or any of those things. 
My point is that as the church, we need to do a better job of reaching out to people who are struggling and caring for them and not judging them. <laughs> I'm not worried about the government. I'm just saying helping these people. And again, I'm not talking about any kind of organization that leads somebody to change their tendencies. I don't know about that. I don't know how successful that is. I know that God can do anything. I do believe that. But I also know that God causes, calls some people to a life of singleness. And that may be the case whether you're a heterosexual or a homosexual. The point is, whatever life you're called to, the church ought to be there to help you live in accordance with God's law for your benefit. Here's the last thing I'll say about this, and then I'm going to sort of wrap things up and give you an opportunity to ask some questions. We need to understand, and I don't think many people do, we are living in a post-Christian context. We are not living in the age of Christendom. So looking out over this group, you need to understand most of you were raised in a Christian environment. Even if you weren't raised in the church, you were breathing the fumes of Christianity. The morality and the ethics that you were brought up in were undergirded by a Christian worldview. That's just a fact. I had somebody come up to me yesterday and ask this question. They said, um, what do you do if you're counseling a young couple and they're living together? He said, my brother is a pastor, and my brother tells them that they have to live apart or he will not marry them. He said, what do you do? I said, I tell them I'll marry him. He said, tell me why. I said, here's the problem. There was a time when if you told a young couple that were living together prior to marriage, you ought not to do that. They knew they ought not to do it. And they knew why they ought not to do it. Now, they might do it. But they knew why. It's because we all had a common morality. We're living in the context where, do you realize the vast majority of people in their 20s and 30s have never been raised in the church at all? Never. I have a cousin who went to Gettysburg College, grew up in Pittsburgh, went to Gettysburg College, now is working in D.C. He is in his 40s. He has never ever been to church a day in his life, except for a funeral or a wedding. My aunt and uncle were not religious. They never took him. If you told him you should be living with your girlfriend, he'd say, why? And if I'd say, well, the Bible says so, the, that doesn't apply to him, you see. He was not raised to believe that. And that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a post-Christian environment. It's like the church, when it began to take the gospel into darkest regions of the world where they had never heard the gospel, they would find tribal chieftains who had five wives. Now, that's clearly not in accordance with the scriptures. What do you do in a situation like that? Well, you can tell them this is wrong and you've got to stop it. You need to get rid of four of those. But what happens to those four women? In that tribal system, they ended up being shoved to the street where they perish with their children. And so the church said, okay, we need to understand these people have acted in ignorance. They've acted in ignorance. So what we want to do is we want to instruct them and help them to understand this is not what God intends. And this is what you have to do now, but the next generation needs to do better. 
I think we need to realize we are not living in that Christian society. We are not living in Christendom. We are living in a post-Christian world like Paul was living in a pre-Christian world. It doesn't mean we in any way compromise the gospel. What it means is you can't impose upon them a morality until they come to the truth of the gospel and believe it for themselves. You cannot legislate morality. We tried that once in American history. It was called prohibition, and it didn't work. The consumption of alcohol increased during prohibition rather than decreased. You cannot legislate morality. It's a matter of the heart. So when a young couple comes to me and they're living together, eventually we'll get to the point where why that is not God's will and because God wants you to live in a different way. But if I say to them, oh, listen, I'm not marrying you unless you separate, that sounds noble, but I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to walk down the street and they're going to get married before the justice of the peace and they're never going to darken the door of the church again. Only because I have said the right thing, but they don't understand why I've said it. So we have to begin to be pastoral, realize the kind of world we're living in. And there are many people who just don't understand. And our hearts should go out to them. We should have compassion on them as Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So we cannot condone the behavior. We cannot condemn the person. We have to speak the truth, but we have to speak the truth in love. And it's got to be both. As Christians, we cannot say that homosexual behavior, or for that matter, any sexual behavior outside the context of holy matrimony, is what God intended. But on the other hand, we should love these people. We should reach out to them. We should befriend them. Somebody says, well, am I giving the wrong impression if I befriend them? Is it going to make me unclean? Eating with sinners and tax collectors did not make Jesus unclean. Now the question becomes, well, why do you Christians always seem to attack this one sin? If if, if Paul lumps it together with all these other things, why does it seem that the church is always hammering on homosexuality or transgenderism or whatever it may be? Here's the reason why this is the sticking point, folks. When Paul talks about all of those other things, when he talks about stealing and swindlers and murder and all of those things, most of us, even if we've engaged in some of those activities, will still admit in our society today that they're not good. Nobody out there is going to say that adultery is a good thing. The problem is that we're living in a culture where people are saying it's not just that homosexuality is a sin. They're saying it's not a sin at all. As a matter of fact, it's something that ought to be celebrated. I want you to think about the name of the movement itself. What is the name of the gay movement? Pride. We're proud of this. We're proud of it. Go back to Romans 1 for just one second. I want to go to the very end of this litany. Verse 28 to the end. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, 
foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, they what? Give approval. That's the problem. The problem is God calls this a sin, and the world says it's not a sin. It's not even a bad thing. It's a good thing. You ought to be proud about it, and you ought to celebrate it. And that is why the church cannot go there. We cannot go there and be true to God's word. And of course, as we have seen over the course of just the past decade, it's not just homosexual behavior. That is to say, same-sex attraction, two committed adults in a relationship. Now we've got this whole LGBTQ, whatever it is, you name it, but we have this whole transgender movement where it is possible for a man to decide that he's a woman today and a man the next day, and it's fluid and it goes back and forth. It's interesting what Jesus had to say about that. We say, well, did Jesus ever address this? Well, Jesus certainly addressed that one. In Matthew chapter 19, he said, in the beginning, God made the male and female. So when we say it was transgender or there's gender fluidity, basically what we're saying is Jesus got it wrong. So we are living in a very difficult age. And it is the consequence of what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 1. And our challenge is to realize we're not living in the age of Christendom anymore. We need to reach out to people who are struggling who are ignorant with the hope of the gospel. We need to speak the truth to them, but we need to do that in love. And if a homosexual person walks through the doors of St. Philip's Church, we need to welcome them. We need to befriend them. That doesn't mean we're condoning the behavior. But let me tell you something. If I had to exclude every sinner that walked through the doors on Sunday morning, there'd be nobody left to preach the sermons. there'd be no one left. So I want you to understand grace and truth is hard to apply in a messy world. Just is. We live in a messy world. Paul says they invent ways of doing evil. That's one of the reasons why the Bible can't be an answer book. It's because we're constantly inventing things. God is not going to give us exhaustive answers on some of the questions that you have. And I know what some of those questions are. What if my nephew decides that he's going to marry another man and I get invited to the wedding? What am I supposed to do? What do I, what do, I do in a situation like this? You see, this is, this is not ethereal. This is not abstract. This is real life. What do I do? I don't want to hurt my sister's feelings, but on the other hand, I don't approve of this behavior. What am I supposed to do in a situation like that? Go to the wedding or not go to the wedding? Well, if you say you go to the wedding, you've got to have a good reason why. I say that because there's no pat answer. So for example, if I were to go to a wedding, and I, I, I'm uncomfortable calling it a wedding because the Bible doesn't call it a same-sex union. If I were to go and people know I'm a priest, what is the impression I'm left with or they're left with? 
the impression they're left with is he must be okay with this. Part of the reason for that is because people will read into things what they want to read into them. And so they'll say, well, he must approve of this. Is that true of a lay person, but not a priest? Well, maybe. But on the other hand, if they know you're a devout Christian and you go, are you giving approval? Or on the other hand, are you going there? They may know that you don't approve, but you're going there to support them because you do love them. And we are called to love them. What do you do in situations like that? I'm here to tell you, I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. What the Bible does, as I said, is gives us certain principles, and you have to wrestle through those principles on your own. What I will say is this. In that kind of a situation, the one thing that it is never safe to do is to deny your conscience. All right? As a Christian, you cannot deny your conscience. Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms on one occasion, and they wanted him to recant his reformed faith, or they were going to, well, any number of things could have happened to Luther at that time. He's standing before the most powerful people of the age, and they wanted to know if he would recant. And he sat there and he said, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. He said, to deny one's conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. So I think what you have to do is you have to wrestle with what God's word is saying, wrestle with what's going on in the family, try to apply the biblical principles to this situation and follow your conscience. But what you cannot do is either to condemn the person or compromise the gospel. And that's why in this world, it becomes very messy. It becomes very difficult. And there are no pat answers. What if you come to the conclusion that in good conscience, you cannot go and engage in, in the ceremony, for example? What, what do you do in a situation like that? Will there be a price to be paid? Might it break, break apart the family? It is a possibility. I'm not going to lie to you. It is always a possibility. It's even more difficult if it's one of your own children. But I want you to understand what Jesus said. Keep your finger there, Romans, and turn back to Matthew chapter 10 for just a minute. And let's just go ahead and read Matthew chapter 10, verses 33 through 39. Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. That's a shocking statement when we think about Jesus being what? The Prince of Peace, don't we? And this is Jesus speaking. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it, 
And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is telling us, look, he was the light of the world. He was the truth with a capital T. But when the truth is proclaimed, when the light begins to shine, it brings division. Even when the truth is spoken in love, the reality is there will be some who will reject it. And in those moments, the question is for you, if you are going to be Jesus' follower, is will you follow him even at the cost of your own family? Because that's what it means to take up your cross and follow him. And I know that some of you are struggling with this, and I understand it. And that's why I'm going to share a story with you that I'm somewhat... I've been reticent to do because I don't like to talk about myself. I'm always anxious about that. But I just want you to understand, I know the struggle. My father abandoned my mother and the family and engaged in a homosexual lifestyle, and my father died of AIDS. And when my father came to visit me, in my last year of college, university, he sat down with me. My father was an academic. He sat down with me. He wanted to know what I was going to do with my life. And by that point, I knew that God was calling me into the priesthood. And I sat across the table from my father. I knew the kind of life that he was involved in. When I told him I was going to be a priest, my father looked me in the eyes and said, if you were Jesus Christ, I'd spit in your face. And it caused a rift just because I was called to go into the ministry. But I made a conscious decision that I would not let go of my father. I would love him unconditionally, even if I could not approve of his behavior. And my father was never really in his latter life a churchgoer at all. And I loved him. He wouldn't contact me. I'd contact him. I'd come back from seminary and I'd go and visit him. And he'd bring up the subject and jump on me. You cannot love me. You cannot accept me if you cannot accept my lifestyle. And I said, Dad, how can you say that? There were so many things I did as a child that you didn't accept, but you loved me unconditionally. And I said, I don't care what you say. I refuse to accept that. I'm going to love you without loving your behavior in the same way that you love me, even though you don't agree with my choices. And I continued to love him. And when we began having children, Kristen and I began having children, I took our children to visit my father. But I told my father that if your friends are going to be here, I can't come. But if your friends are not here, I want you to have a relationship with your grandchildren. And he was a good grandfather. And two years before my father died, I presented him for confirmation. And because he died um, from a terrible disease that was long, the entire estate was just gone. I got nothing. Father left nothing. The only two things I got from his estate were a Bible and the Book of Common Prayer that was presented to him on his confirmation. And I was flipping through it, and I came to the confession of sin. And the words, the burden of them is intolerable, was underlined. 
So I know he struggled. And I knew he had a hard time forgiving himself. But God is the God whose property is always to have mercy. It is never easy. It is messy. It is painful. But it is the gospel way. Neither do I condemn you. But go and leave your life of sin. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. It is hard for us as Christians to live under the authority. There are so many questions, and it is difficult, especially when it comes to individuals in our own families. But you call us to the way of the cross because even though it is a way of suffering and pain, often rejection, it is nevertheless the way to a fullness of life. So grant us the grace to follow Jesus Christ, to love unconditionally, but not to compromise the truth, and to be willing to suffer the loss of all things, save the loss of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.